Linda, and welcome again, everybody. Great to see you. Um, th this is, uh, my name is Pastor Brian, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors at York Alliance, and uh, this is the time in our gathering that's typically called the pastoral prayer, and it was brought to my attention this week that some of you may not even be familiar with that phrase. You don't even know what, what the idea of that is, and basically, when we have a pastoral prayer time, it's uh, someone from our shepherding team who has a shepherding role in some way who prays over us as a congregation so that we can all enter into the, the things that Jesus is doing. We, it's kind of a, a leading of prayer that we can all engage. And so that's what we're going to do in just a minute. But before we get to the pastoral prayer, I'd like to take a moment to give you a pastoral word. And so um, th this pastoral word is just uh, hopefully to shepherd us in uh, the direction that we're going both today and, and in the future. If you've ever been a part of our membership classes, one of the things we talk a bunch about is uh, the idea of closed-handed theological doctrine and open-handed doctrine. And basically what that means is that some things are so central and clear in the gospel, we call them closed-handed doctrines. We would say uh, this is inherent in what it means to to be a part of the church throughout history. Jesus is Lord. Some of the things that we declared this morning that Scott led us in, in confession of sin and the recognition of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin, those are closed-handed doctrines that we hold tightly to. And we would say, if you don't ascribe to those, if you don't believe those, then we are unable to be in fellowship together because that's central to what it means to our fellowship. But there's a bunch of other stuff that we would consider to be open-handed doctrine. And what we mean by open-handed doctrine is not that it's unimportant, but that it's second tier or lower things that are, um, there's certainly truth out there, but that people who love Jesus and believe the Bible and study the word can disagree on those things and still be united because they're not central. So uh, an example of that would be things like uh, the timing and method of the creation act. Did God do that in six days or six epochs? Is the earth young or is the earth old? Good people who love Jesus can disagree on those things and be okay. That's, that's totally fine. Well, one of those open-handed doctrines is the spectrum between what's theologically known as complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Those are big fancy words you can use to impress your friends this week. Uh, let me define quickly for you. Complementarianism is the theological belief that along with the created order, when God created gender, the church is established around that order and that there are certain roles within the church that can only be held by certain genders, specifically that there are specific leadership roles that can only be held by men and not able to be held by women. Egalitarianism, on the other hand, is that none of those things are true in the New Covenant and that men and women can equally take any role within the church, that, it, that, that gender is not an inhibitor for any role within the church. We're part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and as the Christian Missionary Alliance, we tend to take middle-of-the-road positions that anger everyone. That's what we do. It's great. And so uh, we, are, um, we are a complementary-leaning denomination, but not fully complementarian. Uh, in that, we have what we call male eldership. So what that means is we believe that elders must be men, that, that is, uh, that's established by God as the order of the church, and that the role of the elder, of which we have six currently, and we, uh, we have a, a seven elder board, including myself, that the elders provide a theological covering over all people that regardless of gender, we can step into the roles that God's gifted us in for the good of the body. 
So that means in a very practical way within the Alliance, men and women equally over the course of the 120 year history of the Alliance have declared the word of God from the pulpits in Alliance churches. However, although we believe that practically and have always believed that practically, the way that our history has worked in the last 40 or 50 years, there's only been a handful of times that there, has been, there have been females who have declared the word of God within our pulpit. It's happened, but it hasn't happened a lot. And the reason is relatively simple, as best I can understand. We've had a lot of really gifted male preachers who are eager to share the word, which is wonderful. And we've been blessed by many of them along the, along the way over the years. But over the past several years, the elders and I have wrestled through what it would look like to diversify the voices that are in our pulpit for the good of the church. One of the things that's just true is when you hear the same truth through a different lens and a different voice, it lands in a different way. And that can be really helpful to us. And so what we sought to establish is a rhythm where I would be the primary voice in the pulpit 35 to 40 times a year that you would consistently hear a single voice shepherding us. But in the rest of those times, we would have different people step in and declare the word as part of the gifting in the way that God has worked within the body. Uh, There are many here that are gifted to do that, and we want to give platform for them to do that. So along the lines of that, back in January, I had the privilege of beginning what we've just simply called a preaching cohort. There's been uh, 11 men and women who have met together each month as we've journeyed together and wrestled through all that it takes to declare the word of God. And that's uh, ongoing. That's going to still continue through the end of this year and probably the early part of next year uh, as we journey through this first, uh, first phase of that. And I did say men and women in that preaching cohort. Uh, It's about evenly divided. And I say it specifically because this morning, the brave soul who's going to step out of that preaching cohort first to declare the word this morning is Pam Croxton. And so Pam is going to be speaking to us today from, from the word. And I'm thrilled. I'm really excited to hear what God is saying through her. I've had the opportunity to hear it twice. And it's just about all landed. So I think by the third time, it's going to get all the way in. I'm really, I'm really pumped. Um, It's really, really a a beautiful declaration of truth. And uh, as I say that, I want to say a couple things. Uh, There's a bunch of you who hear this, uh, a big category of you, who say, it's about time we're tired of men talking to us all the time anyway, and we'd like to hear some women talking to us. There's a big group of you, probably the single biggest group of you, that said, honestly, I've never thought about this until right now, and it wasn't a big deal until you started talking about it, so why don't you just shut up and let her talk, which was fine. I totally get that. Um, But there's also a category of you, and I know because I've had conversations with some of you, who would say you don't land where we land theologically. You would would see that differently. And I want to say a couple things. First of all, that's totally fine. We do not have to agree on this. Just as we don't have to agree on how old the earth is, we don't have to agree on this issue. However, I want to ask that as... Over the course of time, a handful of women step into the pulpit at different times to declare the word, that you, as best you can, if you are able, prepare your heart to hear truth as God speaks to us through those people. And if you find yourself in a position where you need to wrestle with that, I want to ask a couple things of you. First of all, uh, I would love for you to come and talk to me about that, 
or to any of our elders. I recognize that some of you may not be uh, up for coming to have a conversation with me. I promise I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise. I really just want to listen to you. Um, but I have done a ton and a ton of reading and research and have landed where I've landed theologically. Our elders have come with me in that journey, and any of us would be glad to have that conversation with you. And so I would just ask, if you feel that you need to have a conversation with someone, we would welcome that, and we would love to have that conversation with you. But parallel to that, let me ask you, if you feel the need to have a conversation, will you at least have a conversation with us before you have a conversation with someone else? And here's, here's my reasoning. Uh, I do believe this is a significant way that we platform one another who are gifted and called to declare the word of God. But I don't ever want any of those things to be a, a, a tool that the enemy uses to, to divide us. The unity that we have in the spirit of Christ is a beautiful gift that he's given to us and one that we are called to maintain. And we're called to make every effort to maintain that unity. And so as part of that, I want to ask you to be upfront about any concerns that you have, to wrestle through that together. We want to listen and engage that. But I also want to ask that you would, with an open mind, and as you study the scriptures yourself, seek to hear from the Lord as, uh, as our sister comes to speak to us today. Next week, Lucinda Duggar is going to be speaking to us. We're not trying to start a, a trend. It just happens to be that two weeks in a row is the way the schedule works. And so uh, we'll have Pam this week and Lucinda next week. And I'm really excited because I believe that this is part of where God's leading us. But I'm very glad to have conversations with you. And so I want to invite you into those conversations. At this point, I'd like us to pray, and I want to pray uh, over us as well as pray over Pam as she comes to declare the word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your gift of love and grace to us is beyond our words, beyond our comprehension, and we are so grateful. We, are, we know that we are unworthy and that we regularly act unworthy of those gifts. And yet, God, you have, by grace, given them to us. And so we receive them with open hands and thankful hearts. We are thankful for the opportunity to gather today and declare through worship how good you are and the grace that you have given to us. Jesus, we pray that you would continue to unify your body around the beauty of who you are that we would, uh, even as we disagree on other things, that we would be able to agree together on your glory, your goodness, your grace, and declare that message of hope to the world around us. God, I lift up this team that will be leaving today for Washington, D.C., those from here at York Alliance, those from Glenview Alliance, and God, I pray that you would empower them, strengthen them, and prepare them for all that you have before them. I'm, I'm so grateful, even as I stand here today and think about the last 15 or 16 months of COVID, what a great grace it is to be able to go into another city and to be able to interact with people and declare your goodness. And so God, as they go, I pray that they would have a clear sense of your spirit flowing through them, that you would, in powerful ways, confirm your word to them, and that they would be encouraged. But God, I also pray that each one of them would, as a conduit of your spirit, be an encourager. They will be working alongside of those who have spent a long year and a half ministering in the city and are likely very discouraged. And so, God, I pray by your grace and by your spirit, you would encourage those that they work with.
Jesus, I'm very cognizant this morning of the fact that we are a body that is mourning and celebrating and growing and struggling, surviving. And God, I pray that you would give us the grace to be the people of God to one another, that we would weep with those who weep. We would rejoice with those who rejoice. We would walk along together side by side as we journey closer and closer to you as your followers. And God, I pray that as Pam comes with your word, I pray that you would empower my sister with your spirit, that she would take the hours of prayer and hours of preparation and that they would become the fuel by which you would catch her spirit on fire and God, that you would anoint her with your spirit that as your word is declared, it would find fertile soil in our hearts. And so God, come and do the work that only you can do, and I pray that you would meet my sister and that you would give her grace as she declares your word to us. To you be the glory and the honor and the power forever and ever, amen. Amen. Pam, please come. Good morning. I told the 8.30 service this morning after Brian gave us his explanation of having women in the pulpit that I suddenly changed my theology and I was going to go home. (laughs) I like to stir the pot now and then, and I just wondered what would happen if I did that. So before I actually begin my sermon, uh, I would just like to uh, say a few remarks too. And that is, uh, based on what Brian shared with us about having females in the pulpit, and our alliance stance. I want you to know that I understand the doctrine, you know, and the alliance's position. But I kind of took that as a disclaimer. And so for me, I was wondering, does that give me license to make mistakes? Or if I do make a lot of mistakes, is that a get out of jail free card, so to speak, for me? Let's hope I don't need either one. But uh, in addition to Brian's disclaimer, I have one of my own. And that is I teach full time. And it's not been that long ago that I finished my school year. And so my disclaimer for all of you is actually a warning. Teenagers are actually uh, tied to their cell phones. Try and get one away from them sometime. And so if I happen to see you with a cell phone this morning glancing at it, and I roam your way to try to confiscate it, trust me, it's just habit. Um, So don't take it personally. Just remind me, it's okay, we're in church. We can surf the internet while, while the pastor is preaching. <laughs> By the same token, if I notice that you're whispering to your neighbor, don't mind me if I just say, shh, because it's habit. I'm just used to telling teenagers, you know, to just be quiet. You know, we're trying to uh, have class. And in the event that you actually end up with homework today or have a quiz to take, I am going to leave that between you, the Holy Spirit, and God to work that out. And then very quickly before I begin, I also want to publicly thank a few people, and that would certainly be Brian, our church leadership team. Uh, I trust your judgment, enjoy your leadership, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I also am enjoying my cohort, my brothers and sisters who are on this journey with me. So I just wanted to say to them, thank you for your support and your encouraging words. And then I also uh, came from the best parents in the world. Uh, And so my mom actually has been a very large part of my preparation, listening to me on days when I would be struggling and couldn't think of how I wanted to say something or reached a point and struggled. 
So my mom is actually here today. I won't ask her to stand just in case it's a disaster this morning and she can duck out of a door. But my mom has braved COVID. Um, she's not been uh, out much in public, so I'm happy to have my mom here and also thank her for her support and for listening to me when I got stuck. And also for my dad, my dad was an Alliance pastor. So I think there's some genetic code in there and I will try not to uh, demonstrate my dad's long-windedness in the process as well. <laughs> as a kid growing up, often I heard from my dad, who was a, a fairly quiet guy, whenever I was struggling or had situations where I would need to go to my dad, most of the time my dad wouldn't really offer much by explanation or advice. He would just simply quietly say to me, hey kid, you got this, you can do it. So I'm pretty sure I've heard that voice a lot uh, this particular week. And lastly, uh, I got to pick on Jonathan West this morning, but he has escaped uh, me picking on him for this service. But a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan and I bumped into each other at the door and he said, hey, you're preaching in a couple of weeks. Are you excited? Are you nervous? And I thought, I don't know yet. You know, it was a little too soon for me to tell. So I mentioned that this morning and I, I directed those comments to Jonathan. It just so happened everyone else heard me too. <laughs> but just to continue with uh, the comments that I started with uh, in all three of my services, am I excited? No. I am overjoyed uh, as I have reached this point and the opportunity to share what I have been preparing and studying. I will tell you that I'm not uh, a person that you usually can tell what their emotions are um, but yes, I'm excited, even more so I'm overjoyed, because this process has certainly been enjoyable. Am I nervous? No. I teach for a living. I have spoken in front of audiences many times before, some smaller than this, some a lot larger than this. So speaking in front of people doesn't really make me nervous. So I am not nervous. I'm terrified. <laughs> Here's why. I am me and things can happen. When I returned home from overseas several years ago, the church asked me to share about my time abroad and things that had happened. And so as was and still is unfortunately my habit, I ran up the three steps in the sanctuary. We used to have our large pulpit up on the stage. If you can kind of visualize what that looked like when we worshiped there back in the day. And I hit the top step, didn't clear it, stumbled, and landed in a full belly flop, splat, <laughs> up on the stage. So all nerves at that point were no more. So now for me, whenever I teach, maybe preach, we'll see, uh, or conduct any kind of in-services, my standard is, as long as I don't do a belly flop, all goes well. <laughs> so I am not nervous. So I need a volunteer to actually help introduce my topic this morning. So young, old, child or not, adult, I would like to have a volunteer help me introduce my sermon. And when I saw oh, Lynn, and I was like, I know just who's going to do this. The task is very simple. I would just like for you to put on my black t-shirt, if I can get it right side around for you. And by the way, thank you for volunteering, or being volunteered. Hey, what's wrong? Are you stuck? 
Do you need help? You do. You're used to dressing yourself though, right? You can handle this? You know what, if you do this, now you can do it. Good job. Thank you very much, buddy. You can uh, keep that or take it off, whichever you prefer, or give me later. So, thank you, Landon. What was the point of that? Don't we all sometimes feel like Landon, like we just struggle and struggle and struggle and we can't handle things on our own, but we're too stubborn to ask for help. Actually, he asked for help a lot quicker than I would in that situation. But I am a lot like that situation where I don't usually go ask for help when I need it. I am also a, a person who lives alone. I work alone. So in the summers when I'm off from school, I make the honey-do list and then I have to go do the honey-do list. Sometimes that's fun and sometimes it's not. I do what I want. I go where I want, when I want, how I want. I am just doing what I want to do. So there's some perks in being still single, but I am a very uh, independent person. I work alone. I am a department of one, me, myself, and I. And so I make my schedule, I do what I think is right by my students, I order tests, deliver tests, and sometimes go to administrators and say, uh-uh-uh, if we don't treat the students the way that the law says, we are going to be in big trouble. And the best part is, they listen to me. <laughs> so I live alone and I work alone. But I am part of a larger society and a country that values that independence and that self-sufficiency and that self-reliance. Our very country was founded on these constructs and these ideas that we can do what we want, how we want, when we want, and if we just work hard enough, we can achieve. Most of the time it's I, I, I. I can do this and I can do that. Some examples uh, from our society uh, may help bring this true. Art, uh, I am not necessarily an art person, but American uh, Impressionism basically was running counter to the culture of the day. And artists would paint their images and be complimented on that. And so if one owned a painting of an Impressionist, they were considered wealthy, and the status was very important. Like, look at me, I own one of these. Historical figures have often demonstrated our spirit of individualism and individuality and self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Uh, in literature, we often read about how the individual prevails and how an individual is able to overcome obstacles and how that individual achieves their own goals. Also, more uh, in the present time, who can overlook sports figures, movie stars, and actors? Uh, I recently read about a, a professional athlete who was mad at his coach. He is willing to retire from his sport rather than work for his coach again. He said, in part, uh, if you have a problem with me because of what I said, that's fine. You have your right. Just understand I also have my right for how I feel about my personal problem with the dude because of what he said about me. If that doesn't show individualism and the importance of self on social media, which is a great medium to spew out individual thoughts, I don't know what is. Hollywood actors and actresses often advocate for their worth and they want to make millions and millions and millions of dollars because in their minds they uh, believe that they are owed that and they need it. 
And who can forget several decades ago, the song, My Way, was popular. And that song continues uh, throughout the song to speak about how the person who sang the song and actually who wrote the song was very proud of the fact that he did things his way in life. And then by the end of the song, the, the writer or the singer is reflecting back on their life and proud of the fact that when they reach the end of their days, they reflect and look back and say, I'm proud to say I have done things my way. But that's part of our culture. That is definitely who we are. Historical figures such as Thomas Jefferson and Eleanor Roosevelt also um, demonstrate this thought. Thomas Jefferson said, nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. Notice the word his, not our, not my family's, not theirs, his. So each man has the right to be able to achieve his own goal. In other words, perpetuate this idea of individualism, of self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. Eleanor Roosevelt also said at one point in time, remember always that you not only have the right to be an individual, you have an obligation to be one. And so this whole idea of individualism permeates throughout our whole society. It's the basis of our culture. Our attitude is we can do what we want, when we want, and how we want. Doesn't that remind you of another population? another group of people. We're going to read from Jeremiah in a moment, but the Israelites demonstrate the same whole idea of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and independence apart from following God. So Marty is going to come and read for us our text in Jeremiah. Good morning. In Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, it talks about the Israelites uh, this way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thank you, Marty. So our central thought begins like this. Individualism and self-sufficiency, as I mentioned in our examples, in the world around us is a powerful force that pushes against the Lordship of Jesus Inherent in confessing Jesus as Lord is a recognition that we are unable to save ourselves and the good life is beyond our human grasp. It's only when we lay down our preferences and embrace our place as subjects in the kingdom of God that we truly live in the salvation and fullness of the life that Jesus promised. So let's see how our text and the central message 
and the sermon all tie in together. I titled this morning's sermon, Jeremiah, the Israelites, and Us. Commitment is greater than preference. So I would like to discuss these three things as we work our way through Jeremiah this morning. The Old Covenant, and I'll share an overview and a history lesson. I'm not a history teacher, so don't panic. That won't take us real long. The New Covenant, God's salvation plan for mankind all along. So we'll try to make some connections. Our response then is how we'll wrap up. Our response to God's new covenant. Is our commitment greater than our preference? So if you were part of one of my English classes, as we started a new novel or a new book, I would introduce the author and share some pertinent information about the author's background. And I would also then introduce the basics of the text so that students would then be able to fill in the gaps as they were reading the, the actual book with me. So who wrote Jeremiah? Jeremiah, okay. That was just to see if you're with me in a week. <laughs> Jeremiah is the narrator then of our text, if you will. Jeremiah lived about 100 years after Isaiah. He was born around 650 BC near Jerusalem and then died in 570 BC in Egypt. Around 627, he was called by God to be a prophet, and so that was his ministry throughout his life. He shared, just to put this into a historical context, his life and ministry was about 150 years after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. The audience of Jeremiah, who would you say is the audience? The Israelites, absolutely, and us too as we read through Jeremiah. Characters in the book of Jeremiah include Judah's five kings who were uh, serving at the time of Jeremiah's life, the Israelites, certainly, Jer uh, Jeremiah, obviously, King Nebuchadnezzar and other characters uh, who led various empires during those times as they were in conflict with Israel, and then God himself must be mentioned. The setting is Jerusalem, uh, which was the capital of Judah in those days. Major conflicts is, as we read through Jeremiah, if you were really looking for conflicts, include these. Judah versus all these other empires and powers that be, Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. Another conflict that we read about in Jeremiah would be the Israelites versus God, including their own inner conflicts about should we obey God or should we disobey God um, and like us a lot of times they did disobey God and then another conflict I would like to mention would be the fact that sometimes when you look at literature we look at um, conflict of inner self and so Jeremiah demonstrates that he did make a commitment uh, to God to be a prophet but he had his inner struggles as well to fulfill those commitments sometimes he was shy Sometimes he lacked confidence. There were a lot of things happening around him, both socially and politically. And so sometimes he struggled with uh, his own uh, commitments. Two major themes jump out at us in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, as you probably know, Jeremiah is referred to as the, pro the weeping prophet, or as I called him the last couple of weeks, uh, the prophet of doom and gloom. Um, but he did... Um, preach about and prophesy against and warn the Israelites of upcoming dangers of the times. He also, he wasn't all doom and gloom, he shared hope for the return from exile that the Israelites experienced and also then shared that a new covenant was coming. 
by way of historical background, some other things about history of this time to share would be the following. The Assyrian Empire declined and fell to Babylon during this time when Jeremiah was alive and writing and sharing and preaching. Egypt briefly returned to power, which was unfortunate for Judah. So Judah was in this crossfire between the Babylonians to the north and the Egyptians to the south. And eventually, the Babylonians won. And so as an outcome of that, Jeremiah shared with uh, his fellow countrymen, it's probably in our best interest if we submit to the Babylonians. Don't make waves, let's do what they tell us. Eventually, unfortunately, the Israelites once again in their history became captives and were exiles. So lots of political and religious affairs uh, happened during uh, Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah was uh, prophesying and uh, ministering during the reign of five Israelite kings during the day. Socially, there was a lot of injustice. Social reforms were happening. Wickedness was occurring. Uh, as I read about this, I thought, well, that sort of sounds like today, but let's get back to history. Uh, Israelites were failing to trust God. They were not obedient to God. And a, just a lot of social unrest was happening. Israelites had turned their back on God and were no longer following the practices that God had given to them. So in a word, they were defiant. They were disobedient, to add a second word to that. Jeremiah shared, we need to return to God. He preached repentance as a strong message, and he implored his people that we, they, needed to return back to God and to be obedient to God's laws. So then Jeremiah also shared, you know, doom is coming, disaster's coming, we have problems ahead. But it wasn't all bad news. Jeremiah also shared, as we read in our text, the message of hope that God can give. And so Jeremiah was able to tell the Israelites that someday joy will be restored and that we will be able to go back home. In terms of a history lesson, let's examine the old covenant in these verses. Um, in order to talk about the new covenant, let's talk about the old one first. What is a covenant? If you could give me a synonym of the word covenant, what would it be? Promise, okay? We have um, documents here in our church and they are referred to as a covenant. It's a promise. These are the things that we will do. Uh, I live in a condominium community and I'm our board president. And sometimes residents get a little unrestful and they don't want to follow you know, the particulars of our covenant. And I tell them, well, this is the promise. The association does this if you do this. And if you don't do this, then we don't do that. So that's a problem. So the covenant is a promise. Well, what promise from God are we talking about in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34? The old covenant mentioned was the covenant that God gave the Israelites on Mount Sinai through Moses, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. And if you recall, God actually physically wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets with his finger. Um, I just I would, I would have loved to have been with Moses to see that happen. The Old Covenant then was given to the Israelites just after they left Egypt. So God's expectation was, you Israelites be obedient and I will bless you. But if you're disobedient, I will curse you. We know how that turned out. Who are the ancestors mentioned in Jeremiah? Well, it would have been Moses and it would have been 
Jeremiah's countrymen's distant, you know, ancestors. So about 860 years after Moses. The significance of Egypt, certainly in our text, is just to remind us that this is the time when God led the Egyptians, I'm sorry, God led the Israelites out of Egypt uh, and headed to the promised land. Why did the Israelites break the covenant? As I was reading through my text and trying to plan uh, my sermon, I kept asking myself questions. It's what teachers do. But unfortunately, I have to answer all the questions today since I'm you know, trying to share what I have learned and share the word with us. So I came up with these reasons. Why did the Israelites break the covenant? Because they're people. They're human. Humans are, they just make mistakes. You know, think of our own children or think of us when we were kids. I disobeyed my parents maybe once or twice in my lifetime. I have students and they're not always obedient either. It's just human nature to be disobedient, especially to authoritative figures like God. It's also just the history of the Israelites. Without their repetitive disobedience and restoration with God and his new promises, we probably wouldn't have much of an Old Testament. So their struggles summarize not only their history as a nation, but our Old Testament as it is now as well. If we continue reading in uh, the verses that Marty read in Jeremiah in verse 22, we see two images uh, that I think are rather uh, fascinating. The first, uh, Jeremiah says, 32, I will not, the old covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand. So picture God as a father, as a parent, taking a child by the hand as if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, as sometimes I do with my students, take them by the hand and say, you don't need to do this, you need to come over here. And I know as parents, we all do that all the time as well. So in this verse, God is acting in a human relationship with us. And so we often pray about, um, we pray to God as our father. Hosea 11.1 1 also refers to Israel as a child. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him son. So God has this father-child relationship with the Israelites as we read throughout the Bible. The other image that actually fascinated me but threw me for a bit of a curve, God references himself as the husband to the Israelites. Okay, well, I don't have a husband. I am still single. So part of my preparation got lost, and as we in education say, I kind of went down this bunny trail. I asked the question, well, what does a husband do? Should I have one? What would I do with one if I had one? And so I started, well, I would lose or forget him. That's probably true after being single for so long. But think about this. Um, for those of you that are married, um, your husband protects you. They help you. They guide you. Um, in some instances, they save you, you know, from danger. Um, I, am, I don't have a husband, but I had a father who had been a police officer for a very short period of time. And so as a kid growing up, as the oldest, if we heard strange noises around the house, my dad had trained me what to do. And so he would say, hey, Pam, come on. You go that way, and I'll go that way. Halfway around the house, I would often think, what am I supposed to do if I see an intruder? <laughs> I am just a little girl. But now, think about God as our husband, so to speak. 
He protects us. He guides us. And he certainly helps us too. If you also think about other verses in the Bible, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So we see God and Jesus working in tandem in that human relationship of husband to the rest of us. Having said all of that about the old covenant and walking through the history a bit, let's examine the new covenant because everything about the old covenant is a precursor to the new covenant. We have to understand the old covenant to understand what God is doing uh, for the Israelites and for us. So everything about the, the Ten Commandments and every covenant and promise that God has made is really guiding us to this new covenant that is mentioned. So once again, a new covenant is a promise. So what is involved in this promise? We don't have the Ten Commandments. We no longer have to remember for which sin do we sacrifice which animal on what day and how do we sprinkle or dunk ourselves in the blood or what do we do with all of this? Those days are gone. So God says this covenant, this new covenant that I have for us is not like the old one. It's like this. It is for the people of Israel. Something jumped out at me about that. Uh, In our first verse, 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Fast forward a little bit. When you get to verse 33, something happens. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. As an English teacher, that jumped out at me, and I thought, what happened to Jeremiah's people? What happened to the people of Judah? Are they not included in this new covenant? And the answer, a very quick answer, is that the tribes of Judah were divided. There were the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So the old covenant you know, was made with a certain um, number of tribes. But the new covenant, covenant is when all the Israelite tribes are together. They're unified. And that covenant will include us. Here are some other details about the new covenant. God said, I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds. So no longer do we have all these rules, policies, practices, and procedures to keep track of. That new covenant and the law is in our minds. We will know what God wants us to do. He will give us the ability to figure out what our job or our task or what our will is for his life because he makes that available to us. I think the most exciting part is this. I will write it on their hearts. So that image of God using his finger to write on the stone tablets, he's writing on our hearts even to today. So for those of us who trust and obey and believe, God writes the new covenant on our our hearts. So the new covenant is our ability to accept Jesus as our savior and follow him. To continue, God says, I will be their God. Um, A couple of years ago, Brian gave us uh, the challenge to read the Bible through in a year. And so mom and I took that challenge. uh, And every, I would walk to my mom's house after work and after I would be preparing for school the next day. And we would read after supper and after we cleaned up the dishes. And because I'm an English teacher, I bought journals and then had my poor mom write about verses that we would read. And then we shared those journals and verses. And actually, we both talk fondly now of remembering how much we learned uh, about you know, the Israelites and God through that practice. 
And one of the things I vividly remember my mom and I discussing was, how many times did God say, I will be their God? Like, just let God be God. I'm, I'm struggling sometimes to understand why the Israelites just didn't get that. But a trivia note for us, that is said 43 times in the Bible, where God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. So ever since the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve broke their promise to God, who promised to take care of them, all God has ever wanted from us is restoration. He wants to have a one-ship relationship with us. He wants us to believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And so we've probably blown that more than 43 times as well. Continuing in verse 34, Jeremiah says, I will forgive the wickedness. So regardless of our sins, no matter how sinful we are, God forgives all, from the least of them to the most horrific sins you can think of. And then God says, I will remember their sins no more. In fact, it brings another verse to mind where God says, I will take your sins as far away as from the east is to the west. So I lived overseas, and I can tell you, I know how far east is from west. If you put your finger on a globe on York, Pennsylvania, and put your other finger on the exact opposite side of the globe, that's where I was. So I understand how far east is from west. That is how far God will take our sins away from us. That is the plan of salvation, right? So the new covenant is the plan of salvation. So the old covenant talked a lot about sacrifices and law, specific law that the Israelites had to follow. But the new covenant, God could not make this any easier for us to do. We no longer have to keep all those rules and laws. All we have to do is believe, accept, let Christ live in us and let him be the Lord of our lives. So no longer is the old covenant in effect. We no longer are performance-based in our relationship with God. We don't have to worry about following all those rules and regulations. The new covenant is grace-based. God did all the work in sending his son, Jesus Christ. To continue a little bit about the new covenant, the new covenant was for the Israelites but it also applies to us as well. And if you continue reading in the verses, the new covenant applies to the best of us and the worst of us, to both the least and the greatest. How does God deliver this new covenant? Well, he's already done that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This has been God's plan all along in trying to restore that relationship with himself. So the new covenant is not a replacement, it's a fulfillment of the old covenant. This new covenant will actually come to fruition when Jesus comes back. Uh, and so the new covenant will begin at, at that particular time, but we are all uh, certainly covered under that. So why does God make a new covenant with Israel? Well, they broke the old one. Um, as it says in... Isaiah 24, 5. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. So the Israelites did not follow the law, so they broke their end of the promise. Just like us, they were self-sufficient once again, independent, disobedient, 
and decided to turn their back on God and no longer follow his laws. So even after multiple covenants with them from Adam to Noah to Abraham to the covenant that we're reading about today with Moses and then the one that was with David, they have broken all of these covenants. And so then God sent Jesus. And so Jesus himself calls his death as the new covenant in blood. So if you think about all of history of the Israelites and the sacrifices they made and the blood that was spilled for their atonement of their sins, now Jesus says, that's me. That I have shed blood now for us. So I am the new covenant. I have done the work for us. This has been God's plan all along to redeem man's uh, sinful nature and to have and restore that relationship with them. So it's no longer anything we do as human other than accept and obey. Just some interesting tidbits about these verses. Jeremiah 31 is the only mention of the new covenant. It is referred to after in the Bible, including Hebrews 8, that actually repeats the same exact verses. Interestingly, if the, if the Jews had have heard about this new covenant as Jeremiah was sharing, it would have been very shocking to them because they just continued to think that they were living under the old covenant, the covenant, the law that had been given to Moses. They just thought, oh, I'm good. You know, I don't kill anybody. I follow the law. I don't need anything else. Kind of like uh, some of us in the day of trying to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. In other words, just like us, they blew it. They didn't follow God's promises. And so what is our response? Why just have some questions for us as we consider how God has made this new covenant ready and available for us. Do we want to live under the old covenant or the new covenant? Unfortunately, there are those around us that we know that have no covenant. They do what they want, when they want. They're individualistic, they're self-reliant. Do we want to follow our cultural norms of individualism or follow Jesusism? As an English teacher, I've taken the license to make up new words. Uh, <laughs> But if you think about it, individualism is all about me. Jesusism is all about Jesus. And so we'll look at in a minute, what does that mean? Do we want to live lives of disobedience, self-sufficiency and independence apart from God? Or do we want to live lives of obedience, grace sufficiency, dependence on God and live the abundant life that he has promised and made available for us? Do we want to go with the flow? Do what culture tells us? Live individualistic lives? Live for me, me, me? Or do we want to go against that cultural grain? Do we listen to our preferences? Or do we honor our commitments to God as Jeremiah and other saints and prophets have done? Uh, I shared in the first service that I was born breach. So this whole series of living counter comes natural to me. I was born this way. Unfortunately, to follow Jesus is not quite that easy. I actually didn't do any work when I was born. Um, but now, this is what God expects of us if we are living counter in our culture and putting Jesus first. We stand up in the midst of culture around us. We let God be God. We live a life of, of grace sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. 
We should consider the needs of others above our own. We share our gifts with others very freely. We follow Jesus even when that offends others. We obey God and not society. We refuse to comply with what the larger society expects of us. We choose to do the right thing even though the culture around us says that's stupid or silly. We follow God's will regardless of what others around us think and feel. Or as we've heard in sermons before, we live like Jesus. We do what Jesus does and we are an apprentice of Jesus. We minister to other individuals' needs as often as possible. And then when it comes to the plan of salvation, we understand our own need for forgiveness, no matter how good we think we are. We recognize our own sinful nature. We constantly request God's guidance and forgiveness. We recognize that the plan of salvation is the same for everyone. There's no least and greatest, so there's no who's going to get out of the parking lot first today. We're all equal. We realize that salvation is the same for all of us. We accept God's sense of our worth because we are made in his image, so we're worthwhile. We also, in turn, view everyone as worthwhile because God, the same God that loves us, learn, loves others. We also remember that God can forgive and redeem everyone through Jesus. And then we have compassion and self-sacrifice for others. So those are some ways that I thought of uh, that we can live counter in our culture and not live lives that are self-serving, but serving Jesus. So as I conclude my message and wrap up, and as the worship team comes uh, to, to sing and lead our last songs, let me finish uh, my sermon this morning with a quote from Dallas Willard. I get bonus points for that. Dallas Willard says, self-denial, not self-promotion, or being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and has no control over me. Instead, we are easily controlled by the love of God and neighbor. Self-denial does not mean having no needs, but includes looking to God and others to meet our needs. Jesus taught love your neighbor as yourself and love one another. Our God-created and self-redeemed self is loved, which in turn strengthens us to deny sin and self-gratification out of love for God and others. So we no longer live an individualistic life. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So think about that. It's not any longer what I do, what Pam wants to do, or what your name is. It's what Christ expects of us. So the life that I lead um, is counter to our culture. It's no longer living an individualistic life. It's Christ who liveth in me. Or, as Landon demonstrated at first, the black t-shirt was chosen for a reason. If you think about ourselves, we were sinful, we were black, our hearts were black and full of wickedness until we accepted Jesus Christ. And so if you look at the visual, uh, instead of thinking about not I, but Christ, I wanna think of that as I 
in Christ. Sinful, independent, self-reliant me is now resting in the new covenant of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us. And all we really need to do is to accept that and to believe it and to continue to grow in Jesus Christ. So, so Brian, come and pray. So Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the new covenant in Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have because of you. We thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin or to the law, but we have been invited to be free. And so God, help us to not run back again to slavery, to our own preference, to our sinful nature, but give us the grace to step into the freedom that comes through you. Your goodness to us is the invitation. So God, with open hands, we receive it. In your name. Amen.